Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. Together, we research and break down complex and timely topics facing our society and bring our findings to you every week. Our promise to you is to bring you honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias toward what can be factually supported, and to try to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. Naturally, we're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they're going to show through. But our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that together we can discuss and address them in a thoughtful and beneficial way. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way people have hard conversations. And we think we can do that using research and discussion to create a common understanding. And since you're here, we hope you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable, maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. We're going to be talking about another one of the foundational struggles that the collective we face when we're trying to have conversations about difficult topics. We've already done episodes on bias and conspiracy thinking and good and bad faith arguments. And tonight we're going to round things out by taking by talking about zero sum thinking. So first we'll explain uh, what that is exactly, where the concept comes from, how it works and where we see it show up in society. And then, because we had so much fun with practical exercises last week, we'll work through a couple of places that we can see zero-sum thinking reflected in headline news topics, namely in conversation about the Supreme Court and the war in Ukraine. And hopefully, we'll keep this one in under an hour, nice and tight, since we've kept you all over an hour for the past several episodes, because we're just so passionate about this. We're so passionate. We'll find out. so many things to say. So many things. We'll find out. So the first thing we want to talk about is what is a zero-sum mindset? Well, to kick things off, we are going to give you our standard oversimplification disclaimer here. Terms and concepts addressed in this episode, in this series, in this podcast in general, are almost always more complicated than they appear. We address topics in a single episode on this show that people have built entire careers exploring. So when we explain something like zero-sum thinking, and it sounds really easy to understand, just know that someone put years of economic, mathematical, social, and game theory into this thing that we are oversimplifying for you. And that's what allows us to do this. Yes. (laughs) So thank you for your hard work. Uh, (laughs) Thank you, everybody. Exactly. Now that we've got that out of the way, we're going to start the conversation with some game theory. So what is game theory? It's math. It's math. Yeah. It's also a really popular YouTube channel with the youths, but that's not what we're talking about today. With the youths. How many youths? All the youths love the Matt Pat. Uh, 
So there, there is actually an entire branch of mathematics that is dedicated to the analysis of strategies for dealing with competitive situations where the outcome of one participant's decisions is dependent on what the other participants do. It's a really complicated way of saying where you have to play a game, essentially. Uh, mm -hmm. Yes, as always, math has found a way to take something that millions of people around the world enjoy and make it a cerebral slog about heavy analysis and probabilities. Just Google tic-tac-toe or rock, paper, scissors and game theory and watch as a world of calculus and matrices and all sorts of esoteric symbols that should be nowhere near these simple children's games flood your screen. Um, I actually have a friend who has a goal to play the perfect game of Connect Four. The perfect game. I don't even know what that means. I tried to look it up. And I couldn't understand the words that people were saying about how to play the perfect game of Connect Four. I didn't even. Okay. Yeah. I'm gonna put that in the in the mailbox for a future episode. Fireside Breakdowns, perfect Connect Four. Yes. Yeah. Be and, great. and if anybody's Definitely. gonna do it, it's him. He's an engineer. He's absolutely brilliant. If anybody's gonna figure it out, it's him. But I didn't even know that that was a thing. Uh, but then game theory has also made its way into so many other fields of study from war strategy to economics to biology to psychology, even politics. And one of its biggest contributions to these fields has been the concept of the zero sum game. So basically, if you are mathematically inclined, assign a value of one to winning and a value of negative one to losing. And if you're playing a game where one side must win and the other side must lose, when you add their scores together after the competition completes, the sum of their scores will always be zero. And that's probably not very helpful to anybody who is not mathematically inclined like myself. So there's probably a better way to explain it. <laughs> yeah, the easiest way to explain the concept of a zero-sum game, especially for the purposes of this episode, is in win-lose terms. In order for one player to win, the other player has to lose. That's just kind of how games work, right? Yes, but this is a specific kind of win-lose situation. In a zero-sum game, the net gains and net losses have to equal out. If I win a dollar, you have to lose a dollar. My success has to mean your equal and opposite failure. There is no win-win or lose-lose or even like a win and a neither lose or win situation. Um, it's, it's Newton's third law of game theory. Equal and opposite and that's it. Now, a zero-sum game is just one type of game among a bunch of others that have been identified and um, analyzed, analyzed oh, yes. by That's game a good theory. word. That's a good word. Right? <laughs> <laughs> there are many different options for games that don't require this net zero win-lose outcome. But for some reason, perhaps it's simplicity or it's duality, which we know that humans love, it's the zero-sum concept that has made its way into our greater social consciousness. The idea that we're all competing all the time seems to have permeated some of the most institutional parts of our society. We also hear the concept of zero-sum used frequently in economic theory, which applies to a lot more than just money. Economics, if we really want to piss off a bunch of economists, ec economists that's the word, um, we'll boil it down to uh, 
It's essentially the study of scarcity and how it applies to the use of resources, uh, the production of goods and services, and how people respond to it, uh, incentives and how people make decisions. I mean, that's about as simple as I can make it, and it's still super I, complicated. Yeah, and I did pull that directly from the American Economic Association, so you shouldn't get too mad if you are an economist. It's, but you, like, it, I'm sorry, fireside breakdown, side note, just name one time when a group of scientists in the same field ever agreed on something <laughs> as simple as like what they do. That is so, fair. That is fair. <laughs> somebody out there is mad. Um, but basically, yeah, yeah. Scarcity, how it applies to use of resource, how we make and use stuff, how we respond to incentives, how we make decisions. It influences concepts we interact with every single day. Economics even applies to how we vote. And there is a fundamental belief in economics that says that there are gains from trade, trade equals gains, and that voluntary transactions benefit both parties. That's a very fundamental principle. In other words, people don't voluntarily give up what they value highly for something that they value less, whether that's money or a tangible good or even a service. So except in cases of deception or coercion, both parties benefit from a trade, from an exchange. It's a win-win situation. It's a positive sum rather than a zero sum. But economists, too, see a strong tendency for people to assume that even these voluntary transactions, where we're supposed to be willingly exchanging something we value for something of equal or greater value to us, um, have a zero sum outcome. Essentially, many people people feel like every time a trade or a transaction is made, someone is getting ripped off. And I feel like we're hearing that right now with gas prices. Uh, most people are looking for someone to blame uh, for gas prices because they believe their money is worth more than the gas in their tank, or probably more specifically, if more difficult to articulate, um, all the things that the gas in their car allows them to do. So their money is worth more than the potential that the gas represents. Point being, what I was trying to get at, though, is that people feel like they're being deceived or, or coerced and that they are losing this game, this exchange. Right. Zero-sum thinking, then, is what we get when the proverbial we internalize the idea that most or all of our interactions involve a winner and a loser, and therefore are zero-sum. Everything becomes a competition. Every situation must have a winner and a loser. We see this thinking pattern expressed in a couple of ways that we love to talk about here, uh, cognitive bias and logical fallacy. Speaking of games... Uh, if somebody were playing Fireside Breakdown's bingo in this episode, oh, they would have definitely yes. won by now with all of the like buzz phrases that we use in we this are particular absolutely going to make a Fireside Breakdown's bingo card for our Patreon subscribers. If you get a bingo, we can have a reward. Oh, this is beautiful. I love it. Yeah. Okay. So, um, <laughs> <What are we laughs> sorry, track, I got distracted. Track, I got excited. Pins. <laughs> so the zero sum bias is a cognitive bias, a mental shortcut that causes people to mistakenly view certain situations as being net zero, that one party's gains are directly balanced by the other party's losses. And this can cause them to respond as though they are competing for limited resources, when in fact no such limitation exists. 
uh, one wholesome and very telling example of this idea is uh, that a child might um, feel like their parents' love can only extend so far and that if they end up with a new brother or sister, that the love that their parents give to the new kid must take away from the love that is available to them. That's, that's a really common thing with young kids. The wholesome part is that, in fact, us parents and uncles and grandparents generally have enough to go around, but a kid doesn't know that. The telling part is that we exhibit this zero-sum mentality from a really, really young age. Like any other bias, this perception can be influenced by how we see the world around us represented, uh, what media we take in, and what we're told. It can also be influenced by our lived experience. Someone who grew up in a household where there wasn't enough food to go around might be more likely to perceive that resources are inherently limited. But again, bias in and of itself is rarely the problem. How we behave because of that bias is what matters. Exactly. Now, the zero-sum fallacy, the logical fallacy part of this, is that mistaken belief that wealth or another resource is like a fixed-size pie. If one person gets a big slice, then there's less left over for the rest of us. It tends to be less circumstantial than a cognitive bias because those biases are intended to help us uh, make sense of a situation or expedite a decision. Instead, this is an overall perspective that's built on faulty logic because very little of what we perceive to be limited is actually restricted in the way that we believe it to be. Like we alluded to earlier, this way of thinking seems ubiquitous across almost every part of life where we have to, like, consider resources and make decisions. Psychologists study it, and so do social scientists and political scientists and anthropologists. But why do we see this tendency so consistently across fields of study? Uh, so one of the reasons is uh, some psychologists hypothesize that zero-sum thinking is natural to humanity and that positive-sum thinking or the idea that both participants can win is not See the example above, where young children exhibit that zero-sum mentality. However, there doesn't seem to be much conclusive support for that idea, at least in the research available right now. That doesn't mean it's not true. It doesn't mean it will never be true. It just means that they haven't been able to do the experiments that they need to to tease that out yet. There have been studies, though, that seem to point to a couple of different reasons that zero-sum thinking is endemic in our society, which is heavily driven by the underlying principles of economics. First up is the idea of intuitive mercantilism, the idea that a person's welfare is determined by their monetary wealth rather than their access to the useful goods and services that money can buy. So it's more about how much potential they have to buy goods and services and not mm -hmm. the ability to actually get them those services themselves. It's kind of a weird concept, but it's a nuanced difference. Um, this can also be loosely extrapolated to include whatever resource a person or group places most value on. So for most folks in America, in the United States, that's money itself. But it could also be another resource. For example, time. The more of it you have, the safer and more successful you are. In this perspective, the money or the time or whatever resource itself is more valuable than what it can be used for. So that means that 
using that resource automatically, exchanging it for anything else automatically makes it a, a losing prospect, a zero-sum game, if you will. Mm-hmm. Secondly, we as people often fail to realize that other people value things differently than we do. <laughs> uh, just across the board, other people have different thoughts, ideas. What? What? Shocked. No. No, surely this isn't like one of the primary drivers for human conflict throughout all of history. That right? doesn't make any sense. We, we disagree. What? So, for example, I might have a dozen chocolate chip cookies, which I don't really like. And I might be willing to trade them to John for three oatmeal raisin cookies because I love oatmeal raisin cookies. From an outsider's perspective, it might seem like he's getting the better deal and like I'm getting ripped off. I mean, 12 cookies for three? Obviously, not fair. But to me, and anyone else who loves an oatmeal raisin cookie, it's a pretty solid exchange. Looking at things this way makes it hard to see a positive sum outcome, even where one exists, because we're projecting our own ideas of value onto someone else's exchange. And because we're human, we often can't help but tell somebody when we think they're getting the short end of the stick. And then that can influence their own perception of the transaction and well, you can see where this is going. Basically, Robin and I have a terrible falling out and we never speak to each other again. Over some oatmeal cookies. It's crazy. Actually, I mean, I didn't like chocolate chip cookies in the first place. So, I would 100% make that exchange too because I do like oatmeal. I love oatmeal cookies, but they don't love me. Oh, yeah. And it's very sad. So yeah. I would... And I do love chocolate chip cookies a great deal. So, uh, yeah, I'm down for this uh, equivalent exchange. Um, So why do we use this phrase? Why do we use it zero sum game so often on this show? Because we especially recently we've we've had it in several episodes. Part of it's just by design. You know, we talk about topics that can be polarizing and that lend themselves to binary thinking which means we have a lot of what we've tried to describe as false dichotomies uh, on this show. Zero-sum thinking falls right in line with that. In fact, false dichotomy and zero-sum pretty much go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Uh, If a person believes that there's only one correct set of beliefs on a subject, only one right choice, then anyone who disagrees or advocates for another set of beliefs or makes a different choice falls into the category of opponent. Because person A is so invested in the value of their own perspective, they are likely to see any setback to their agenda as a loss for their perspective and a win for their opponents. This is the climate we're living in right now. We'll talk about this more in a little bit, but just spend even a handful of moments thinking about it and you can easily rattle off pretty much an infinite list of examples. Gay marriage somehow ruins the sanctity of quote-unquote traditional marriage. That's a whole thing. Let's not talk about traditional marriage right now. Uh, (laughs) Restrictions on gun ownership mean everyone will lose their guns. Uh, Thinking the Trump administration ever did anything right means that you're a fascist and want to overthrow democracy, uh, clearly. Not towing the party line 100% of the time means you're a member of the other party and and on and on and on. Right. Both ends of the political spectrum are guilty of presenting issues with this perspective. Though, interestingly, they tend to play this card in different circumstances. 
One research piece that we read looked specifically at the relationship between political ideology and the belief that one party's gains can only be obtained at the expense of another party's losses. This study found that conservatives tended to exhibit zero-sum thinking in areas where they felt like the status quo was being challenged. I mean, they're called conservatives for a reason, right? <laughs> what? Shocking. That's what they're conserving. For Okay, hey, I don't think we've ever explained that, but that no, is why they're that. called conservatives. Yeah, right. they're trying to conserve the way things are, if you will. Right, right. Um, so that means issues like LGBTQ plus rights systemic racism, and immigration. All of those conversations kind of challenge that status quo. And you'll hear them throw out talking points like, Mexican immigrants are taking our jobs. They're taking our manufacturing jobs. They're killing us. That's a direct quote from Donald Trump. Um, what? I know. Liberals, on the other hand, tended to exhibit zero-sum thinking in areas where they felt like the status quo was being upheld and shouldn't be. So think economic inequality, environmental policy, and LGBTQ plus rights. Yep, there's some overlap here. Talking points on this side sound like, uh, I'm talking about a war being waged by some of the wealthiest and most powerful people against working class families, against the disappearing and shrinking middle class of our country. The billionaires of America are on the war path. And that was Bernie Sanders. So in both of these examples, the win-lose is it's made pretty clear, right? They, the other, are directly taking from or harming us with their decisions or behavior. If the Mexicans, you know, get their way, then America dies. If the billionaires get their way, then America dies. Yeah. Just, you know, adjust your definition of America for the party that you're talking about and voila, there you go. Um, these ideas are used to justify a course of action or behavior intended to counteract that loss. So let's fight back against or, uh, me these Mexican immigrants by not letting them in the country. Or let's fight back against the billionaires by raising taxes on them. Mm -hmm. Remember, this is all part of building a strategy for dealing with competitive situations where the outcome of one participant's decisions is dependent on what the other participants do. Yes. This is a strategy that guides our thinking. But the express goal of this podcast right here is to help people overcome this tendency to think of complicated and nuanced issues as win-lose or black and white. We can't have big conversations that lead to meaningful change and positive outcomes for everyone if we think that every issue is a zero-sum game. The topics that we cover rarely come down squarely on one side or the other, especially when we're talking about politics. And it's really important to us to point out where gains can be made for both or all the perspectives that contribute to the issue that we're talking about. We've got to continue to call out these false zero-sum games every time that we see them. So pay attention. When you listen to political commentary or the news or even discussions about things as benign as professional sports, now obviously most sports are win-lose by design, don't get me wrong, but outside of the game itself, you'll hear mm -hmm. zero-sum mentality all the time whenever somebody makes a trade, for example. Why would they give up this guy for that guy? It makes no sense. This guy's clearly better than that guy. 
if a complaint or argument sets up a scenario where there's a winner and a loser, you might be getting sucked into a zero-sum mentality. And we're not saying you have to call out your buddies at the bar or whenever you know they start to fall into this. That it, it trust me on this one, <laughs> guys. Trust me on this one. I have done the personal research on this. That guy is not very popular. He loses friends very quickly. <laughs> but but be aware of it. Listen for it and and all the other biases that we talk about, all the other fallacies in your and listen to them, listen for them in your everyday conversations because if you get used to picking them out when you're with your friends, you'll recognize it much faster when you're talking to someone that already has your guard up, like a politician or a news anchor or a used car salesman. Okay, so where are we seeing this zero-sum fallacy reflected in current hot topics? Uh, well, we've already mentioned a f- several places where we run into this zero-sum mentality in current situations. We talked about immigration and LGBTQ rights and, and economics and all of that kind of stuff. But let's examine a few of those really uh, a lot closer because, you know, we do love a practical exercise around here. Um, so the one that immediately comes to mind is, uh, the question of what we do with the Supreme court. Um, if you haven't been paying attention for the past couple of years, allow us to summarize very, very briefly. This is actually brief. This is actually brief for fireside breakdowns. I am very proud of this. The Supreme court is currently ideologically imbalanced. There are six conservative justices to three liberals. We won't get into the weeds about why this is, but just know that it involves some people not acting in good faith. And if you're wondering what that means, check out our last episode where we talk about good faith and bad faith. Um, People being obstructionist, we've got some stubborn and idealistic personalities, and a guy who really likes beer. Okay? So that's that's kind of the lay of the land. (laughs) Okay. So the, the modern drama around the Supreme Court and the subsequent massive imbalance has left liberals feeling scared and worried about the state of civil rights in this country. If the leaked decision striking down Roe v. Wade is any indication of the mentalities of the conservative justices sitting on the court right now, and we have no reason to believe that it isn't, not only are abortion rights on the chopping block, but so might be things as fundamental to our freedom as same-sex marriage, legal contraceptive use, and even interracial marriage. Operating under this mentality, with those fears, um, there have been increasing calls to rebalance the Supreme Court. Now, most often, this takes the form of adding seats to the Supreme Court, usually three. So you end up, ideally, with six conservative and six liberal justices, roughly. After a long campaign to pack the courts, conservatives have begun decrying this attempt to, I guess, counterpack the courts <laughs> as uh, it's as a loss, not just for them, but for America. Right. And to illustrate the point, the Conservative Heritage Foundation uh, obliged us with an article entitled why court packing would be devastating to our republic way back in October of 2020, which is <laughs> right after Amy Coney Barrett was was confirmed, I think, or at least nominated. Um, and this topic was particularly 
right. uh, up front in the headlines. Um, and that that article, it contains the uh, an incredible, really tidy example of the zero-sum mentality at play. And that sentence is, packing the court will only ever yield short-term political victories at the cost of the long-term health of our republic. <laughs> I mean, I could not have asked for a more perfect example of what a zero-sum mentality looks like being delivered as a talking point for political goals. Yeah. I mean, frankly, if you use the standards that we talked about last week in our in our conversation about bad faith arguments, the whole article is written in bad faith. From the outset, it fails to consider the possibility that a court that more evenly represents the political ideologies of the overall population of the U.S. could yield legal decisions that more accurately reflect the will of that population. You know, like a democracy or something. It also completely ignores the active role that conservatives took in packing the court themselves. But discussing that isn't the point of this episode. And we're just trying to show one way that this could be a win-win to put to bed the lie that it would have to be zero-sum. Yeah, we haven't quite addressed that particular bit of uh, <laughs> hypocrisy. Ooh, I'm getting heated just thinking about it. Moving on, let's talk Good about plan. the war in Ukraine. Um so the war in Ukraine, war in Ukraine continues to rage, um, though its prominence in our media coverage is abating somewhat, um, and sadly. Uh, but the federal government, uh, the federal government's involvement uh, is not slackening. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Congress approved an additional forty billion dollars in aid to Ukraine. I think a couple of days ago, they had, they approved another billion dollars in aid. Um, so the aid package currently, I think the way it stands, or the $40 billion one, um, it provides $19 billion for immediate military support to Ukraine, $3.9 billion to, to sustain U.S. forces deployed to Europe, $16 billion for economic support to Ukraine, global humanitarian relief, and a wide variety of international programs, and $2 billion for long-term support to NATO allies and DOD modernization programs. I think the $1 billion is earmarked almost explicitly or almost exclusively for weapons or ammo. I'm not 100% certain on that, so don't quote me on it, but it's very new. I'm still learning about it. Yeah. And with every aid package that's confirmed for our overseas allies, people lament the massive expenditure, arguing that the money would be better spent domestically. Every dollar that we send overseas is a dollar that could be spent housing the homeless, feeding children, building infrastructure, and so on. While it would have been a tragedy, they say, had Ukraine fallen to Russia, what concern of ours is it? America first, after all. That hurts me to say. say I, it's, yeah. I know, I know. I've seen entire conversations about it, and it just... <sighs> it's cold, is what it is. It's very um, unempathetic mentality. Yes. So yeah, yeah, we likely could have saved billions of dollars if we never aided Ukraine, at least initially or up front. But and and I think everybody listening can understand this. That is a spectacularly short-sighted way to think. Um, and to think that giving money to Ukraine does anything but help us here domestically 
is very difficult for me to figure out. I don't know how you arrive there. I mean, for one, after the debacle that was our Afghanistan withdrawal, it shows that the U.S. is still committed to combating encroaching authoritarianism on the global stage. It also kept Russia off the border of NATO. If Putin ever does move against NATO, guys, we don't have many great choices there. Either we uphold our agreements and move to aid the attacked country, or we forfeit our position as a global leader in NATO, or somehow try to negotiate a ceasefire before things escalate beyond the point of no return. But it's kind of hard to do that when our NATO obligations pretty explicitly state what yeah. we have to do. So it's, it's, it, that, is, that is a no-win game. Guys, that is definitely a no-win game. But for the money we're paying right now for that $40 billion plus, we are helping a sovereign nation defend their borders. We are degrading the military of an adversary. To make it clear, I am only speaking of the Russian government. I have nothing against the Russian people or Russia, the idea. Um, we are defending NATO's border. Uh, we're strengthening our standing on the world stage after a tumultuous four years. Uh, we are basically getting a massive soft power benefit from all of this. Mm -hmm. And that's without sending a single U.S. soldier to fight directly in a war. It's, it's cold comfort, but it is at least better than zero sum. And that's right. my only point with these points. Yeah, and, and it doesn't even, like, yeah, it, it doesn't take into account the fact that, that our efforts to help Ukraine end this war uh, then could potentially impact things like the gas prices that we uh, love to complain about around here, yeah. right? Because we know that that factors in. So all of those exercises were, were just an opportunity for us to stretch our brains a little bit and get outside of that win-lose thinking. There are so many different ways that we could explore every aspect of both of those examples and the examples that we talked about earlier. Um, but we encourage you to work yourself through some of those. You know, if you yeah. if you want to understand that a little bit more, a quick Google search of zero sum thinking immigration will get you just tons, tons to take a look yeah. at. Yeah. And one of the downfalls, we didn't talk about it a whole lot, but like zero sum thinking, especially when it comes to politics and especially when it comes to its predictive powers, mm -hmm. it's really bad at, fig at like determining what's actually going to happen. Uh, usually it's used as a more persuasive argument, I would say, and not an actual uh, well-founded argument. Mm -hmm. So if you see these, these concerns coming up in this zero... Uh, some mentality, especially uh, from a politician, chances are the things that they're going, the, the things that they're saying are going to happen, if you know they don't get their way, are pro they're probably not going to happen. Yeah. At least not that way. Because it basically boils down to the fact that we are constantly uh, evolving, not in the genetic sense, but. Um, in the decision-making sense, society where we have action and reaction. And as soon as you make a decision, it changes all of the other decisions that could possibly be made. So not only is it a fallacy, it's also a rather weak tool predictively and probably leading you to several false conclusions 
uh, beyond the idea that somebody has to lose in order for somebody else to win. Mm-hmm. I think we, we like can tangents. summarize. We like tangents yeah. around here. Yeah. I, th- I think we can summarize. I think we can do like our little bump and then get some good news and we'll be like perfect. It won't like, be an hour oh. and a half. And well, we haven't quite hit an hour and a half again, but an hour and 10 minutes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is just like, I wish that I could explain to people how just incredibly appropriate it is that when we intend to have an hour long episode, it's an hour and 10 minutes, always consistently an hour and 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Just because like, I feel like that's essential to who we are as people. It's core to our identities, really. Yes. Like, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> to recap, what we talked about today was uh, zero-sum thinking. Zero-sum thinking is a mindset that's explained by a concept from game theory and economics in which net gains and losses of an interaction between two parties have to equal zero. If John and I are playing poker, whoever wins is rewarded with the amount that the loser wagered. Whoever loses is out all the money that they bet. People who tend to think this way see their interactions with others or their in-group's interactions with others as competitive, and they believe that the resources available to all groups are inherently finite. Then we talk through a few reasons why people might develop this mindset, like overvaluing one kind of resource or failing to understand that others value resources differently than they do. We also talked about the fact that this mindset has been carried through to other areas of life and studied by researchers in a variety of fields who have noticed that people very often approach interactions in politics, economics, social equality contexts, and and even on the road. That's right. Let's not pretend you've never sped up to keep someone from passing you on your way to a stoplight, right? (laughs) But... The reality of the situation is that most of the circumstances we encounter in life are not actually zero-sum. They're not win-lose situations. In fact, there is potential, oftentimes, for everyone to benefit. But we have to be willing to see the benefit for others with the same value we see the benefit for ourselves. Yes. It is imperative, therefore, to practice empathy and to train empathy and to Mm -hmm. introduce it as a valuable uh, personality trait early on in people's lives. But now I could, nope, not going to wax on about empathy and its importance to a functioning society anymore. You know what we can't wax on about though? What can we wax on about? Firesidebreakdowns.com. So cool. Yes. So pretty. Exactly. At firesidebreakdowns.com, you will find all of our episodes, all of our show notes, so that you can check our resources. There were quite a few for this episode. Not as many as some others, but definitely more than uh, some previous episodes. So if you want to know what we looked at to find this information, maybe you want to dig it out yourself, you can find that in our show notes. You can also find a link to our social media accounts and to our Patreon account uh, if you do want that Fireside Bingo card and whatever reward does come with it. You should head on over to our Patreon account where uh, producer Savannah does a great job of keeping people updated and uh, making sure that newsletters go out and all of that jazz. We've also added links um, on every episode page now to our to your favorite, the most popular uh, podcast apps. So if you end up on our website, but you'd like to listen on the go, you can just click on that website or on the app link and it should open it for you directly to 
uh, our latest episode. You ready for some good news? Let's do some good news. Give me some good news. Okay. So we're going to talk about Denver's STAR program. Um, the STAR program delivers, uh, deploys, I should say, medics and mental health workers instead of law enforcement officers to some nonviolent emergen- emergency situations. Um, and it is being expanded because it's been successful, which is great. A new study by Stanford University found that since 2020, the STAR program has reduced crime by up to 34% in the parts of the city where it operates. When law enforcement officers are deployed to these situations, often the only tool available to them is the law itself. So, you know, when you're a hammer, every problem is a nail. Um, Instead of de-escalating situations or, or providing resources, they're trained to seek compliance and exercise their authority to gain control of the situation. That doesn't always work well. And the star, the star program changes that dynamic. Professor Thomas D conducted the analysis and noted that the pilot results were extraordinarily encouraging. He said, when the star team is there, that person is much less likely to be arrested. They are receiving health care instead of being entered into the criminal justice system. In these neighborhoods, uh, there were fewer citations and people were less, were less likely to reoffend because they got the help that they needed. He also noted that targeted lower level crimes, things like disorderly conduct or trespassing, etc., they fell dramatically in the downtown precincts where Star was deployed relative to the other precincts where the program was unavailable. It wasn't available in these downtown precincts seven days a week, 24 hours a day during the pilot period, he said. But we see those lower level crimes reducing even during those off hours, which is, uh, as my, the inner criminal justice nerd in me is like super stoked to hear that because it is the, the, mm, the crime fighting effects, if you will, of any particular program or idea when it's not currently being employed are so important and oftentimes super ignored. So yeah. uh, really do enjoy hearing that. So D, D, D estimates that there were 1,400 fewer criminal offenses in Denver because of this pilot program. And the study also found the STAR program saved taxpayers money. D said, if the people served by the program were placed into the criminal justice system instead, it would have cost the city, it would have cost the city nearly four times more to manage them than using the star program, which is a huge win-win. There's no two ways about that. Um, I, I, I have, I was convinced a long time ago when I was studying criminal justice about the need to reform our justice system to focus more on uh, prevention of crime through something like the STAR program and uh, rehabilitation in our prison systems, which means completely overhauling our prison system. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because people, especially uh, for-profit prisons would, they love to say that they are rehabilitating inmates, right? It's part of pretty much everybody's website. Um, (laughs) 
I can't believe that's an actual true statement. Um, Prisons have websites, especially private prisons. You can check them out. It's crazy. Um, But our rehabilitation is notoriously poor. Our recidivism rates are astronomically high. And part of that's because as a society, once you are criminalized in any way, or once you are a criminal, I should say, um, you lose access to all sorts of resources and opportunities that theoretically you should not only have access to, but have greater access to. So uh, like education, um, like on the job training, like uh, trade training, um, like drug rehabilitation programs Mm -hmm. and on and on and on. And so uh, like we could, we could almost with one move, we could almost improve uh, not only the public's interactions with police, but also the mental health of our police force. Um, also the recidivism rates in this country, also the prison overpopulation issue in this country, also the massive crime rate uh, compared to the rest of the world in this country and the massive uh a disproportionate representation of certain minority communities in our prisons we could we could almost overnight quote unquote fix those problems if we refocused our efforts into things like the star program providing aid instead of providing judgment uh, at the moment of crisis if you will and and even more so preventing those moments from happening at all because we have restructured our society to provide for people to give them the safety net they need to not turn to crime out of necessity or out of uh, environmental factors that otherwise would have not or that would have otherwise not let this person turn to crime I didn't write this down, so my words are a little jumbled up, but basically we could do better and it's not that hard and it would end up saving everybody money in the long run because we wouldn't have to spend so much on inmates and on the prison system and stop voting for tough on crime policies that don't address the fact that criminals start out as humans, just like every other one of us, created equal according to the founding principles of this country. That's it. That's all I got. I'm done. And on that note, Savannah and I will be back with you next week uh, for a special Fireside Unscripted. Uh, But until that time, take care of each other. (laughs) 